capitalism and the economy, how affecting other people. Start with you. How that affecting you? And when you get that analysis, you will understand other people. And you can be able to articulate it better how capitalism is affecting economically women. Let's not forget that our struggle is for bread and butter. It's to infuse people's lives with dignity and afford people the dignity that this perverse system steals them. And I keep saying the same words, dignity, justice, liberation, dignity, justice, liberation. And I think this is at the core of an anti-capitalist feminist struggle and should be at the core of our movement today and as far as capitalism is alive. You're listening to That Feminist File, a new podcast that unravels over 40 years of feminist movements and reimagines a way forward. I'm your host, Gopika Bashi. I'm a passionate feminist at heart, and I also work at AWID, an organization that supports feminist movements worldwide. is a pyramidal economic system that results in the majority of people remaining at the bottom of the ladder so that the privileged few can stay at the top. Throughout history, those at the bottom have often been women, particularly women of color and other marginalized communities. Women's labor, whether it is caregiving or domestic work, remains largely unpaid. Even when we do get paid, we still earn a fraction of what men do for the same work. Our labor is deeply undervalued and invisibilized. If the feminist movement is about disrupting and redistributing power and ensuring equity for all, it is critical that we challenge this system. Today you'll hear from two anti-capitalist advocates these committed feminists from Africa and Latin America will take us along their journey working towards a more equitable society for all. Aurea Mozinho was born in Angola in the middle of a civil war. Angola was in a civil war from the time of independence, so mid-70s up until 2002. So close to 40 years there, right, of just being fighting between ourselves, which was very sad. And even though I was fortunate or privileged enough to never have been in the center of that war, for you to have an idea, the war was last in Angola in 92, and I was just a baby, just one year old. I think the context of being in a war country really shaped how social relations are framed, how we relate to one another. I feel like in my family, I was somewhat insulated from that. But I think in relation to my feminist politics, it was quite important that my family was also unconventional in the roles that I saw my parents perform. Still very patriarchal, of course. But for example, I grew up around a father that could always cook and I liked to cook, a mom that 
oriented how a lot of the things ran around the household. So thinking back, while I don't think that in itself made me a feminist, because I think being a feminist is about a collective politics, that allowed me the sense of empowerment as a girl and then as a woman to know that I needn't take a place in the world that wasn't other than the one I was rightfully, rightfully in the way of having rights deserved. So that shaped me a lot as a person in the way I engage in my politics, in my personality, in my openness to other things, to the other even. For example, while I would go to church on the one side from my mom in Methodist church, from my dad's side, I'd go to Catholic. So the idea of contextation of two realities was always present. And even though we lived in a context of war, within our household, with, with my parents and with my dad specifically, I was always allowed to engage and to ask why. One of the things my dad always says is that I, I'm raising you not to be yes men or yes women, because we were in a context where for people, for their survival, in a context of war, Everything was so sensitive. Many times you had to just say yes and to go with the flow. So that shaped a lot of who I am today. Just like Aurea, Jeanette Wezo was raised to question the society she lived in. She was born in El Salvador in the early 60s to a labor rights activist. My mother was a union activist very activist. And I think that's where I start my passion for justice. In El Salvador in the 70s was a major strike. The teacher union uh, put in a big strike because, you know, I think it's in general around the world. The healthcare providers and teachers always are in the low pay. And I believe it's one of the most important you know, professions or way to prepare next generation. So at that point, they were really, really bad salaries. They didn't have access to health insurance or nothing. So they organized. And my mother was one of the leaders in the town where I born and, and used to live. And they organized. And I remember where I was around seven years old, more or less. After school, all the kids of the teachers, they, we were to have fun, you know, to this like warehouse. But ba basically what we were doing was like putting in uh, rice and beans and sardines and sugar and coffee. I still rem remember, you know, in bags, in little bags. It was like a, you know, factories. Uh, now I, I give her time, my mom, and I say, well, you were doing child labor. <laughs> when the parents were meeting and organized and prepared for the big strike, we were supporting them, but we didn't know. So after, you know, our time to do that was done, probably an hour, hour and a half, two hours the most, they take us to play in the playground and give, give us an ice cream or go for pupusas, you know, like a, a way to appreciate that we were doing something. A couple of months later, school was suspended. Jeanette realized that the food she packed was for the teachers who were going on strike. We were so happy that we were in a 
vacation. It was no time for vacation. So then it's we're escalating, you know. And those bugs that we were doing were helping teachers and families that because they didn't have their salaries, they didn't have no way to feed themselves. And I start realizing that my mom provides some food. And I remember she was like saying, you know, you don't understand this, but you should. We have a moral responsibility to take care of each other. Jeanette carried the sense of moral responsibility into high school as she joined the revolutionary student movement. I joined that because I always looking for injustice. You know, is it injustice? I'm there. I learned how important it is to have that moral responsibility. And I graduated from high school and then I went to the college and the situation in the country was really bad, you know, in the 80s. One of the religious leaders, San Romero, was killed because he was, was trying to be the voice of the voiceless. It was incredible, the inequality. and was hunger. That's the fact, you know. And the social movement, the popular movement started, the civil war started. The civil war in El Salvador began in 1979 as a conflict between the government and a coalition of left-wing groups. A year into the war, the Salvadoran state undertook an agrarian reform to restore popular support for the incumbent regime. Part of the country's agricultural lands were expropriated and turned into cooperatives. Jeanette began working with these cooperatives. Her job was to support the peasants in applying for loans to get money to work the land. During that time, you know, the army with the government was having these strategies that when the co-ops were ready, you know, to crop, to harvest the produce, they put gas and burn it with the products to make sure the co-op didn't have a means to pay back the loan. So that was a was very difficult. It was really hard. So then the peasants became peasants during the day and there were guerrillas at night, especially in the area where I was working, to protect their land. Several times I was arrested, but the last time that I was arrested because the work that I was doing was very clear that if I don't get out of the country, I will be killed. Jeanette managed to leave the country by applying for a student visa to study at the University of Carolina. Her husband followed her to the U.S. a couple of months later, leaving their four children with their grandparents. When Jeanette's visa expired, she decided to stay in the U.S. She found a job cleaning houses. As a domestic worker and a mother, she began reflecting on the ways capitalism takes advantage of women. Who are in the industry that is taking care of kids, which is a daycare center, or, you know, like babysitting women? Who's taking care Elders, women. The unpaid work. You know, in the, in the morning you wake up, 
If you have kids, you have to feed them. You have to clean. You have to take them to whoever is taking care of them. And then you go to work. There are three or four hours already there. You didn't get paid. And then you do what you have to do and you come back. Do dinner, homework, cleaning, laundry, prepare for the next day. Another four hours. So you already work eight hours without pay. That's without counting during the weekend. Right? So who is helping us? It's the capitalism and the patriarchy. Because unfortunately, that's not cool for some men to wash dishes, to take care of cats. It's changing, but not at the speed that should be changed. So all of those things, I don't think so many people are aware or thinking. I do, because I know how the capitalism is affecting my life. And I think that is the first thing. Sometimes we talk about the capitalism and the economy, how affecting other people. Start with you. How that affecting you? And when you get that analysis, you will understand other people. And you can be able to articulate it better how capitalism is affecting economically women. You know, why do you think the daycares are unbelievable expensive? Because they want women's. Do it on their own. Figure it out how you can work at night or when somebody can take care of you. But, you know, and don't get help. Because before, at least, the public assistance helping with that. Now it's very limited. Public assistance, you know, is instead to get increased, is shrinking. So it's another way that the capitalism is affecting. Like Jeanette, Aurea started to question capitalism after she moved out of her home country. She left Angola to study economics at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. Upon graduating, she remained at the university, working as a researcher. I realized the, the brutality and the extent of inequality in a way that I hadn't seen before, because I was driving from an, a part of town that was quite well-serviced, in somewhat wealthy and lush with green and waterfalls and mountains and touristic sites and going to a site where there was so much deprivation in ways that I, I didn't think was possible in a country that was classified as high income in, in, in many senses or developed. So that really shocked me and I think gave me the necessary outrage to being open to a politics of change, to being open to the idea of questioning why the world is shaped around that. The narrative that I had learned in school just didn't make sense, which was, well, people were poor because they, they didn't have the skills, they didn't have the capacity, which is what they teach you in conventional economics course. The courses didn't make any sense whatsoever. So for me, that was really shape-shifting in positioning me to say, well, something isn't right here. And the answers aren't in that ivy tower of the university. But Aurea didn't think of economic inequality within a feminist framework until 2015. That year, she went to a festival in Ghana and attended a workshop by Jessica Horn. 
Jessica is a Ugandan activist, writer, and advisor on women's rights. So I sit there first in awe of Jessica because she's so beautiful, right? As a person, but also her spirit, what she transmits in the room. And second, listening and having this first presentation of of a politics that is rooted in the radical idea of love and not so much in in the sense of anger and and really uh, um, emancipatory and happy possibility as women, as African women in our collectivity and our singularities. So at that moment, I was like, okay, I guess I'm a feminist or at least I want to be. This looks cool. (laughs) This looks cool. I want to know these people. I want to be able to dance and celebrate and not be ashamed of my politics or not be ashamed of my body and not be ashamed of really wanting a different world. And Jessica, I connect with her, this star-eyed Angolan person, just be like, oh my gosh, I want to read more. I want to know more. She said, well, next year, there's an African Feminist Forum. You should come. Aurea received an invitation to attend the 2016 African Feminist Forum in Zimbabwe. And that was just the most beautiful event in my life. <laughs> you saw this woman descending from all parts of the continent. I say descending because they were physically actually going to Zimbabwe and so colorful and smelling all types of amazing and, you know, bringing their daily life experiences and politicizing that. So there were issues of sexual reproductive rights, of democracy, issues of governance, issues of development. So that was the first space where I saw all of this coming together, not in a typical conference setting. People were there for love and there was joy and there was celebration. And of course, now I understand that there's a whole politics of organizing feminist spaces, but really the sentiment and the power of that space for me as a, as a person that was encountering or starting to encounter feminism and African feminism was really important. And that's why to this date, I believe that we can't have a feminism that is one insular and a feminism that isn't about joy and a feminism that isn't about bringing us together physically. Because I myself am a product of all of these events, all of these conversations that shape me and shape my politics. Aurea returned to Angola hoping to create a similar feminist space in her country. At the time, the word feminist was still somewhat stigmatized. Despite this, Angolan women were forming a strong online movement against the normalization of gender-based violence. There are many cases of, for example, women being raped or women being killed and with no accountability whatsoever, Worse than that, with the discourse of victim blaming. So I think there was a very visible and palpable sense that things needed to change and that young women were pushing for it. Yes, we didn't have at the time any semblance of physical presence because remember, we were in war for many years and that then created a culture of fear because people, there was violent repression against critical voices. So online uh, gave the sense of protection that people felt that they could express their feelings and their views without the physical repercussions. So we were scared. We didn't want to go arrested. And for many of us young women in Angola for whom the fight was just so we could not be killed or we we wouldn't be raped or we wouldn't have discrimination in the workplace. Because again, 
for many women, the, the the understanding of feminism was or feminism was still very liberally oriented. People were not up to getting arrested because of that. Aurea figured that they needed to start somewhere off the streets. And what better place than her own home? At the time, I was still living with my parents. And it's very common for houses in Angola to have a backyard and for us to use plastic chairs when you have visits. So we put those plastic chairs around. And I think about 10 of us, 10 people showed up. We made a Facebook announcement saying, oh, come to this feminist encounter, which we translated to Onjango Feminista. Onjango is a word in Umbundu, which means a gathering place. So let's say you bring all of your friends to discuss a serious issue. We call that an Onjango. So you, it's, it's generally a place where that gathers men and older men to address the issues of our community. So we said, okay, let's have an Onjango, which is in a way to subvert the idea that only men can discuss, only older men can discuss, but let's have feminist on jungle, which is a gathering place of feminists, still to address the issues of our community and our larger community. So that's how on jungle started. We came together at my parents' house. They very gracefully brought us food. <laughs> and we sat there, and one of the first questions we asked was, why do we need a feminist movement in Angola? Why do we need, what do we want to achieve with it? And, and it was really touch and go. We did have the African Feminist Charter, but at that point it wasn't available in Portuguese. We ended up translating it later. But we wanted to get a sense of what was driving people to be there. And even though there were 10 of us, we still had a very useful afternoon and very fruitful conversation to start dreaming about a different possibility and from that, we met on and we met on and we met on and it's been almost five years of Onjango now. We sort of went through a phase. At the beginning, we were very like street-based and we <laughs> we wanted to just smash the patriarchy directly. And I think that was important. First, because we we're fighting against a counter-narrative that didn't see a space for legitimate feminist voices. And we wanted to say, well, we are here and we are here to stay, deal with us. But today, the challenge is different. The challenge at a time where everyone calls themselves feminists is saying, well, what sets us apart in terms of a feminist collective that is predicated on African feminist values? And how can we avoid becoming just another organization and being co-opted by the system? And how can we reinfuse ourselves with energy to keep the fight going? Onjango Feminista understands feminist politics as inherently connected to economic inequality. We cannot address this from the point of view from someone that has benefited from the way the status quo is. For example, there was a mobilization around abortion and the right to abortion. I think it was 2017 when the national parliament was discussing a revision of the penal code and they wanted to outlaw abortion. And we knew that we had to stand up. And one of the ways we did it, tried to mobilize society around it, was not saying only that, yes, abortion is a right, a woman's right, but also that the right not to have abortion accentuated inequalities along class lines. And, and one of our greatest advocacy points was to say, in Angola, rich women abort, poor women die. So in this in, in our country today you can get an abortion if you have enough money if you don't have enough money you go to bed early providers with a with a greater risk and then you end up dying so 
We always saw all the issues that we are advocating against as an issue of class. And I think that's the greatest economic angle that we have been trying to push. And also trying to connect the deficiencies that we see reflecting women's lives as structural and governance failures. And broader than that, this economic structure at the global level failures. Aurea sees healthcare as a part of a capitalist system that is failing women. We know that within the health sector, it is women that are the majority of providers and and they work in very precarious conditions. And we know that, for example, within the health sector, the the inequality is such that women's health continues to be a largely underfunded area compared to the others. We live in a country where there's higher mortality rates, but if you have money, and it's very common in Angola, people from middle class and rich people, when they get pregnant, they go on some, uh, what I, li- I like to call prenatal tourism, or <laughs> in the sense that you go have your baby elsewhere. But, you know, people that can't afford will stay in the country. And even if they have the service in private clinics, it's not guaranteed that they will come alive or the baby will survive. It's very common for us to deal with stories of women many young women and poor women that have died during the childbirth process or have developed complications afterwards. And we know that there's a governance aspect to it, but there's also the fact that Angola sits in a position where, like many of the countries in the global south, that is where austerity policies are pushed on through debt agreements and that then, you know, replicates and unfold into this all of these inequalities. Jeanette's activism is also focused on creating a more equal society. She eventually managed to get a work permit through a U.S. program for immigrants who are unable to return home safely. Jeanette transitioned out of domestic work and became a community organizer at the Latino Parents Association. She also mobilized low-income women to fight for their rights at the Coalition for Basic Human Needs. She then moved on to work as a program director at the Women's Institute for Leadership Development. Which is an organization that is working with women in the labor and women in the community and made that connection. Because mostly the time, women are paying dues at the union, but they don't feel connected because it's the same story. Who's making the decision are men, you know, and their voices, there are no spaces for them. So I was like, no. But at the same time, I took control of myself because something that I believe is like, you cannot work to do something when you are not starting from home. You know, that's another thing. It's like, yeah, my husband is a wonderful man, but I have been doing everything, you know, like looking for school for the kids, fighting at school for them. I'm there, he's supporting me, but who's fighting all the time is me. In 2001, Jeanette joined United for a Fair Economy, an organization committed to fighting inequality in the United States. She worked as an education coordinator for 14 years before becoming their executive director in 2017. I have been doing a lot of work in many, you know, issues, but something was missing. And it's the one that we work it out, which is the economic inequality. Once you have the analysis of the economic inequality, you can connect that with all issues because they're related. 
on top race and, and gender? Bingo. And that's exactly what United for a Fair Economy does. When you present the data and put aside the story is when it's powerful. Because you can find many data, but without stories, there are no impact. So that's the work that I do, that I love to do as a director. Yes, I do some management work, but in the majority is programmatically. It's where I really build a team because there are many nonprofit organizations that they say, oh, wonderful. Yes, they do wonderful work outside, but inside they're a mess. There are people that hate each other and they are co-workers. They forced to be sitting in the staff meetings or do something. My vision is like, in order to make changes, you have to know with whom you want to make the changes and who better the people that you're working with, right? So I don't feel my organization is a workplace. My organization is a family. As a leader, Jeanette puts her team first. This is the moment in time where people are doing more like transactional relationship. That is no stay longer. You have to build relationship. And that takes time and a process. And I think that's where I get where I am. Because I build that relationship. I always take care of it. In my meetings, it's like, let's don't go to business right now. No, you're like, how you feel, what you're doing, how you did the weekend, how's your family. That's how you start building. Like what I said, it's like, you're going to do some changes. You need to know with whom. Because you're not going to do with something, somebody that you have no idea what their life is or what their goals are or the values. Like, values are very important. People are creative when they feel dignified, valued, and respected. And I think that's, many times people say it's because you are a, a woman. You know, you have the different perspective of leadership. You are caring for the others. And somehow you have indigenous roots. And that's part of the thing, because I always said the most valuable thing that USC has is their staff. Nothing else. We can have tons of money in the bank and we have a great computer that other organizations they don't have, you know, the great benefit. No, it's the staff because it's led by a woman. In, a, in the whole history of USC, this is the first time that people say, I feel so good working in this organization. I feel so respected. I feel so cared and loved in this organization. That is a big difference. Lucky stuff, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. that's the problem when I, sometimes I say, well, I'm thinking that I'm going to retire. No, you're not leaving. You're not going nowhere. I'm like, well, at some point I'm going to leave. I will, uh, my role right now, I feel is prepare new generation with all the experience that I gained during this time. You know, I'm not expecting to be five more years there. I want to, you know, 
take my time, do other things that I have not been able to do in the past, and support, support the new generation. I think that's my role right now. Jeanette wants other women to remember that they are capable of overcoming any obstacles they might find on the way. I think we always receive a, a message that we can do this. You know, women are made it just for be a good mom, you know, a good take care of, but not to look for changes, changes that won't be just for you, but can be changes for everybody. Many times people say, I love your story and thank you. I was in a moment that I feel lost. But listen you, how you get there is inspiring me and I can do this. I can. I was like, of course. You know, something that my mom always said to me is like, don't let anybody say you can do this. Because you can do anything. It's hard. And that's something that I always said, you know, has not been easy. Even, you know, I'm very grateful and blessed. And I don't have words to say how I feel to be the executive director of United for a Fair Economy, a well-known, respected organization. And being a woman of color, immigrant, with uh, indigenous roots, low income has been, you know, tough. I never in my mind path to get there. My thing was like changing the culture of work. But I was never think that I will be there. Have a goal in your life. And don't give up. Because I feel life is like that, you know, the when you are marathon running, but there are obstacles. You have to jump one. And it is very high, you're gonna fail. You, it's a matter of you, how long it's taking you to stand up and continue. Because it's not playing field. It's like, you know, running with obstacles. But you get there. And when you get there, you say, wow. You just look back and say, I'll beat it. Aurea also has a message for feminists around the world fighting for change. For movements, I think it's important to not get bogged down by the technicalities of it. I think this will shift in the way. Um, so starting and holding dear the dream and the fire, right, that made you start in the first place is what is critical. And I think it will reshape along the way and it's okay. You know, it's not going to be the same thing always, particularly in a context where resources are scarce. So being a feminist activist comes with compromises. I can say for sure that I've had to make compromises as I sought more stability in my personal life, particularly financial. So responding to the moment, leaving the fire and passing it over when you feel like you're not more capable of doing a, a quite key. I don't see this as marginal to a feminist politics. At the same time, the struggle is political. The struggle is very political. It is for bread and butter. So even though we are getting tired, you might we might be getting tired, even though uh, things are difficult, I don't think we should compromise on the radicality of our politics. 
Let's not forget that our struggle is for bread and butter. It's to infuse people's lives with dignity and afford people the dignity that this perverse system steals them. We can't tweak the radicalness of our politics to for small gains that will not take us closer to our vision for dignity, justice, liberation. And I think this is at the core of an anti-capitalist feminist struggle and should be at the core of our movement today and as far as capitalism is alive. Jeanette and Aurea remind us how our daily lives are impacted by capitalism. And most importantly, they remind us that we have agency to challenge that system. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to That Feminist Bio so you don't miss out on new episodes. Please also rate and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. This show is made in partnership with Human Group Media. Our executive producer is Camille Lorente, associate producer Fernanda Uriagas, mixing, editing, and music by Maverick Aquino. To know more about AWID and to claim your place by the fire by becoming a member of our global feminist community, visit www.awid.org. I'm your host, Gopika Bashi. And I can't wait to catch you all in the next episode.